why are we calling life insurance an investment? Like if you're investing money in life insurance, that's the problem. This is Better Wealth with Caleb Williams. Steve Parisi, welcome to the Better Wealth Show. Thanks so much for having me. Nice to be on. It is it is an honor to be on here with you. And it was an epiphany that I had just the other day. And I reached out to you when I had that. I was like, you know what? We are in a space and we have so much knowledge. We have so much ability to help people really take back control of their wealth. And so what I want to do, instead of trying to be scarcity minded and saying, oh, I hope people just find me. I want to literally introduce them to some of the people that I have a ton of respect for that are doing it in a lot of cases, 10x the way we're doing it and and elevate everybody's bar. And and what what's the quote? A rising tide uh, elevates all ships. Yeah. And so with that, you're a legend in the in the YouTube life insurance, whole life insurance space. And it's an honor to have you on here. I know we're going to get a little bit of your background. I'm going to ask you a lot of common questions that I get. And um, I'm hoping that this brings more awareness to the power of properly designed life insurance. Yeah, definitely. Well, thanks so much for having me on. And the respect is 100% mutual. I've seen you grow your channel, your business at such a young age, which is what's so impressive. But when we first met, you might recall, I think you were early, early 20s. I'm like, when did you first get in the business? You said I got licensed at 18. I'm like, all right, you got me beat. I got my license at 23. <laughs> so mutual respect. <laughs> yeah, I, I love it, man. And you, you've been super helpful. And, and I remember calling you. I remember calling you trying to figure out your system. And so I chickened out halfway through because we, we were talking before about common faith. It's like, I can't lie worth my life. And so I wanted to pretend like I was a consumer. And you asked me one question. I'm like, just here's my whole life story. And oh, by the way, if you never want to talk to me again, you're that's okay. And you were you followed up with a ton of resources, you've been always super helpful. And uh, I, I love getting those video texts from you every once in a while. Love, love that style. And so with that, man, what I'm always fascinated by is how people get into a certain industry, why they do what they do. And so I would love to first get your backstory of like, you know, IBC Global, how did that become? Like, how did you become an expert about life insurance? I know that you talk a little bit about bank funded life insurance, and that was kind of an avenue. And so I want to hear that. And then, like I said, I have questions to ask you about IUL versus whole life, how to properly structure a policy, some of the big mistakes people make um, when people talk about infinite banking, what do they mean by that? And so uh, this will be a really fun episode. And I love talking to someone that we can go deep. And so with that, your story, it can be as long or as short as you would like it to be. Okay, definitely. I will do my best to keep this organized. I got into the business, it was 2011, um, because a friend slash mentor who I still know today, I still talk to him about insurance, he recommended, you know what, Steve, you should get your insurance license. I'm like, all right, I'll give it a shot. You know, who knows? And I worked at a company called Bankers Life and Casualty. Have you ever heard of them? I, I've heard of them, but I couldn't, I, I've oh. never worked with them. Final expense insurance, Medicare supplements. I lasted for about nine months. And my first full year in the insurance business, I made a gross income of $5,500. So I, I was struggling. I still lived at home. That's how I was able to eat. But um, I, I struggled. And that was just door-to-door -door sales, cold calling a list, people screaming at you on the phone, very, very ask for the check, close. It's not me. Just to be, to be frank, with all the training I've had in business, that's not me. 
After that, um, 2012 through 2013, um, first after that role at Bankers, I interviewed at several companies um, and took a role as a guardian FR. FR is a financial representative. That's a career agent. I worked exclusively for Guardian. And the initial role was to sell life insurance. Just same thing, but selling to friends and family, building that network. However, I quickly gravitated toward illustration software. Um, so what I ended up doing was for the office, run a lot of the illustrations. I, I loved it. I still love it. The software is really my thing. And they also used me to uh, model out a lot of financial plans. There's a program that Guardian still has only available to career agents, LBS, Living Balance Sheet. Have you heard of that? Yep. Beautiful software. I wish they made it available to brokers. I've asked them a million times, but they don't. Um, but I would do that for the office. So for clients, I would model the actual plans, same thing with illustrations. And I was more of a turned into a back office guy. Um, transitioned out of that office. And then I picked up a role at another firm. All they did was executive benefit planning. So SERPs, non-qualified deferred comp plans, large deposits going into cash value life insurance policies. That's really where I learned a lot of the ins and outs. So I was brought in there just to run illustrations and work on the models. Uh, there's times we'd work on construction companies for the top 10 executives. Um, and it was a pure cash value play. Death benefit had a long-term benefit, um, but I was the guy just running a number of illustrations with different companies for this corporation. Um, I did not engage with the clients. The owner of the firm did, but I, was, I took the orders. But it was at that firm I was privileged because I had access to higher ups at home offices at some of the major mutual companies that had insight and would disclose, you know, when you look at the illustration software and how it's written, you'll see different formulas applied to base premium dollars with respect to the dividends, PUA dollars, and you have one thing illustrated, here's the actual performance. Talk about nerdy, actuarial, deep dive stuff. And I'm just like, salivating at the mouth, like this stuff is great. Um, but that's where I learned a lot of the ins and outs. And that was from 20, 2014 through 2015. Um, and I was no longer with Guardian. I was an independent broker at that point in time. So a lot of nitty gritty stuff, a lot of, a lot of historical data we would always look at. So not so much what's illustrated, but actual cash value policies, proof of performance, um, which we can get into that later or not if you want. But that's a big reason why I'm so big on certain companies with properly designed policies because we've seen it work. We have the data on hand. And whenever we try and request it from someone else and we can't get it, I'm like, you know what? I need that data first so I can treat everyone's money the same as these big corporations have their money treated. Um, so that was called the learning years, taking in knowledge from 2011 through 2014, kind of early 2015. And I still learn every day, but it was um, at that firm connected with these two guys named Jake and Nick. They live out in Idaho, Jake Thompson. And yeah, yeah you might, you might know him. He's a good guy. So is Nick, his brother-in-law, but uh, we saw his website. Um, like, this is pretty cool. I had a partner at the time, like we should try and meet with these guys, pick their brain so we can try and create a website like, like what they have of, of our own. That was our intention. Um, but they were great guys. Like we're, they're like, we're looking for someone to partner with. So we're like, all right, let's give it a shot. And to make a long story short, from about 2015 to 2018, all I did was work the leads they provided. Wow. So repetition just every day, right? Eight meetings a day, five to eight meetings a day, just nonstop. So that helped me a ton take all that knowledge and communicate it 
in a manner that the consumer wants it communicated or needs it communicated. Um, and we were talking about that a little bit before the topic of communication that's so important to me. It's not practiced enough, but that repetition for three years, that helped so, so much. And there, they have a website, like Why Cash Value Life Insurance, I believe. So that one's ours, actually. That one's okay. mine. They've got um, becomingyourownbank.com and wealthicity.com. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then Jake wrote a book, something like, it was like really bold. It's like money with life insurance and wealth or something like that. You got money, wealth, life insurance. Okay. Yeah. Very and short. Yeah. Go ahead. Super short book. It's on Audible as well. And I can see where that could be a lead machine because people read it. It doesn't, it doesn't really tell them everything they need to know, but it goes deeper than just the average, like it, it tells you why a lot of the wealthy and a lot yeah. of people in history that have built a lot of wealth have used life insurance. And then from there, they would figure out a way to get the lead and then they would send that lead over to you. Yeah, that's exactly what that's happened. Incredible. It, it, it is. And they, they're still effective at it today. Um, one thing I've noticed about that book and other books out there is people are hungry for the numbers because the concept just of cash value life insurance has, has really done a good job in selling itself with, other, with whatever concept you're going to approach it with. But uh, maybe it's just my mindset too. I like the numbers and we work with a lot of people that like numbers engineers. They want the numbers. So that's typically the audience that detracted from that type of book and others similar to it. Um, so through 2018, I still work with them, um, but 2018 started investing in the company in business development, um, personal development, um, started marketing. We started a YouTube channel. We just threw webinars up and then we realized something was there. So we kept doing it more and more. Um, the office I'm, I'm in now used to be a garage. Um, we converted it into an office, a full-blown awesome. commercial office. And then we just converted it last summer to a full-blown recording studio. Um, just went all out so we can actually put effort into the production. Um, but that's that's where we're at now. We're at about 40 employees, a little bit less. And that's a combination of our full-time agents and staff. Um, I like this size. I'm always back and forth. We try and hyper-grow it to a lot of people or take the Warren Buffett style and just get really, really good with a handful of A players. Um, but I'm always going back and forth. You know, there's no right or wrong answer there, but that's a long story. Uh, sorry if I talked a lot there, but that's the, the best I could sum it up. <laughs> what I what I love about you, and, and this is my, you know, hypothesis and why there's a, not a lot of good education and not a ton of success. And when I mean success, I don't mean making money, but like actually helping people get results is, it, is the life insurance industry, especially they're like, Hey, your license go and sell. So you're like, you don't know, you don't know anything. And you're going out and talking to people trying to ask for referrals before you add any value. And then you're so focused on selling and then they teach you tactics on how to sell and you're, you're figuring out how to deal with objections and all these things and not actually helping the person. But then when you do make the sell, they don't teach you anything about products. They don't teach you anything about design. And, and so you get the, get the people that make a lot of money that aren't really doing the right thing for their clients, if I can be frank. And then you get a lot of people that it doesn't sit well and they leave an industry that literally has the potential of having tremendous impact on people's lives. And so it's, I'm frustrated because I look at an industry that, you know, I'm a little biased, but I think we're in one of the greatest industries that can have an amazing um, lifetime impact on your life, but then a generational impact but then I see people just fumbling the ball all over the place. And so the cool thing about your story is you didn't have to sell right away. You got to work with some amazing people. You got to be put in front of people that were doing company 
um, plans and I want you to break the, a little a down yeah. why a company would do that. And, and then, so you got to get comfortable with the numbers and that created confidence. And then you built your business off of that confidence really with competency. And that's what I love about your story. And anyone that has had a lot of success has had taken the time to learn and go deep. And a lot of times they'll say, I didn't make much money from this year to this year. Um, and yet it paid dividends, no pun intended, on on the future. And so I appreciate you breaking that down. Um, before we jump into the nitty gritty, why are companies doing these type of plans? And why in the world are banks buying life insurance with some of their tier one assets? So I can hit both of those angles separately, just because when you look at banks, bank-owned life insurance is a bit of a different animal. We've got a, like I'm privileged, our biggest client is a bank where we set up literally their bully, their bank-owned life insurance products. And it was because of the background that I acquired, I was able to know what I was talking about in that meeting, um, still leveraged help of others. Um, and also we had an in just to the owner there. But when you look at a, a bully, how that works is it is a single premium mech Banks just make a one big time deposit. And it's actually a single premium universal life policy as well that functions much differently from any kind of traditional UL or IUL you would see. But they purchase that really just as a tier one asset. It's a one-time lump sum. Cash value is positive day one, does nothing but appreciate. And then the death benefit does provide long-term benefits. For example, let's say you own a bank. I'm one of there's I'm one of your employees. You've got 30 other people you take this, these policies out on. You're paying for health benefits, 401k matches, a ton of stuff for your employees. That death benefit does provide a cost recovery. And then there are times we'll set it up as a split dollar. Um, some smaller banks that are more of a, a family bank style will do this. Um, we'll just say, okay, we don't want to just have our employees feel like we're cashing in on their death. So we'll set it up where it's a split dollar where they'll get one X or one and a one and a half X their salary at death. But with bank owned life insurance, there's no cash value benefit where there's a disbursement that goes to the executives or anything like that. They just say, here's money we have in cash or they borrow right from the Fed because they can get it next to nothing, plop it in a bully product where the yield will outproduce what they're borrowing and just let it sit and grow. And the death benefit does pro provide a long-term um, benefit accounting for inflation as well. Um, but that's typically a pure bully and they just view it as an asset play, AAA rated. They prefer the top companies. They are limited with how much bully they can purchase with each insurance carrier, but that's just a 50,000 foot overview of Bowley. Any questions on that? No, and I believe you have a couple of videos on your YouTube channel that we do. really break yeah. that down. And so if I get those, maybe I can put those in, in the description below. Um, and, so, and so when it comes to corporations though, what are yeah. some of the most common strategies as it relates to corporations that use life insurance? Yeah, so that's a lot of fun. Um, Non-qualified deferred comp plans, which you can bundle a SERP with, supplemental executive retirement plan, all these long words. I like to use the terminology golden handcuffs. So let's say, for example, uh, that you've got a company and let's say I'm your, I don't know, one of your managers or CFO, you own the company. And you say, Steve, I want you to stay with my company I don't want you to go work for a competitor. I don't want you to go start your own business and become my competition. So how do you retain me is the question. How do you ensure that I stay with you? So what you would do as the owner say, Steve, if you stay with me until age 65, 
for the next 10 years, maybe it's performance-based, you, based, you, can, you can create any type of vesting schedule that you'd like. But if you stay with me, Steve, I'm going to pay you a retirement benefit, almost like a pension. I, would, I won't say that for compliance reasons, but a retirement benefit from age 65 until 90 or throughout the, the duration of your retirement, whatever. So I said, okay, sounds good. How the plan is actually set up is you take out a cash value life insurance policy on me. So there's an immediate death benefit. If I die, that death benefit flows back to you, your company as the owner. So you've got key man insurance immediately there. And you can set it up where if you want my family to get some of the death benefit, you could do a split dollar. Not all corporations do that. But you fund that policy. The company, you owns it controls it, you're the beneficiary. As you fund it, you have access to the cash value. So it is an asset on your balance sheet. And as it grows over time, I might look at it and say, hey, what's in it for me? Well, you've promised me this long-term yeah. long retirement benefit. The catch is, however, is if I leave, I don't get that benefit. So the closer I get to that end date, right, the harder it is for me to leave. So it's kind of a a double win for companies where one, they keep their top talent. That's the number one advantage. But then number two, as you build that cash value up for the company, it's an asset on your balance sheet. Right. You have access to that. A lot of companies either will access it directly or they'll assign it as collateral right, with a bank to get a line of credit against it, whatever. They've got to make sure that the, the cash is there in retirement. So that's always considered. But you've got that asset on the balance sheet. You can use it however and whenever you want, and you retain me. That's a, a general overview there. There's more to it, but um, any questions it, on that? Yeah, it's in, <clears throat> it's interesting because my book, The And Asset, is is talking about the, the paradigm of when life insurance is set up and used properly. It can be an and asset. And this is like an a and asset for companies because you get you get a, you know, a team member who's a massive asset for your team. You get to um, have a, a future benefit for them, but you get to control that benefit. So when I, if, if there needs to be access to capital to tap into, that's available, and yet it's providing so many benefits and protecting, God forbid something happens, all in the meantime. And so it's like, what's the ROI of that policy? It's like, it's hard even from a numbers person to say like, life insurance gives you this benefit because we don't know what the next 20 years are gonna look like and how someone's going to utilize that policy to enhance a, a certain thing. Maybe there was a, someone who offered your key person an, another job, but they stuck around because of the future. And so it's just, it's almost impossible to model that, but it's, it's really cool to just as a business owner realize like why people do certain type of policies and plans like this for their team members. Yeah, no, it's, it's powerful when you look at how it works. Um, and the, the long-term benefit too, there's a cost recovery aspect. Um, when eventually I do die, you've paid me a retirement benefit, but those plans are always modeled conservative dividends. I even like to look at the guarantees to make sure that even after you've paid the, those benefits out as the business money flows back income tax-free to be able to recover all of those costs. Um, and a common question that pops up is like, all right, I'm trying to lock him in, but what if he actually leaves? or if it's performance-based and like he, he leaves, what happens um, is you can take a life insurance policy and transfer it to another individual. Um, it's a tra transfer of insured rider. Professional sports teams do this all the time. Um, for example, if I say, all right, I'm out of here. I'm starting my own company. You can keep the money. I don't care, Caleb, I'm done. I'm saying, all right, well, what do I do with this 15-year-old policy? 
well, the next executive that comes in or someone else, you can transfer that policy to them. And the neat part about that is the policy remains 15 years old. The new insured has to go through underwriting, but it's based on their age 15 years ago. So you don't lose time, yep. assuming they're approved. <laughs> yeah. That's incredible. It, it's, an, it's an incredible and it's another aspect. It's another tool for, for business owners to um, take care of the people that they're, that they're working with, but also create a, a, a dynamic asset versus some other typical assets that will we, we won't we'll remain nameless for now, but like it's just one of those things that it's another benefit that you may or may not uh, know about. Um, I want to transition to the personal side um, and talk about this concept of infinite banking. You know, Garrett Gunderson calls it cash flow banking. I wrote the book called The And Asset. There's a lot of names for, for essentially saying overfunding or max funding life insurance and using it as an asset. Yeah. What I always say is it's a it can be a foundational asset that can also play as a part of your portfolio, depending on what your strategy and outlook is. If I were to ask you, talk to me about why someone would want to bank with their life insurance. Now, if you cringe a little bit inside, I don't blame you because this, this, these terms are overused a lot, but how would you break down that strategy in your own words? And how have you seen it um, in, in just your client's life? Because I know that you design a ton of policies for your clients to bank with their life insurance. Yeah, so I can walk you through exactly what I say in those cases. Um, so the idea of infinite banking in a nutshell teaches one how to use a high cash value life insurance policy as a financing tool. An excellent way to illustrate it, Mr. and Mrs. Prospect, is real estate. So a lot of people are familiar with real estate, but they might not be familiar with the idea of infinite banking. So I'll ask, do you own a home or have you invested in real estate? Yeah, I have before. Okay, great. Let's pretend for a moment that you've got a piece of property and we're in a perfect world and it appreciates by 5% every single year like clockwork, right? Perfect world, yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> so if you own that property and say the value is $100,000, you elect to borrow against it, say you take $50,000. That 5% appreciation, will you continue to earn that on the entire property value or just the remaining equity in the home? Well, the entire property value. That's why I like real estate. Okay, so going back to infinite banking and cash value life insurance is when you look at a cash value life insurance policy, it functions just like that. Where if you've got $100,000 in cash value and you elect to borrow against it, you're still going to earn that appreciation, call it 5%, it's typically between three to 5% on the entire cash value. Any money still in equity and what you've loaned against it. There's no lost opportunity cost. The difference is you've got guarantees that'll continue to appreciate. And the big difference and why people relate this to being their own bank is with a cash value life insurance policy, you have control and the ultimate say to, to say, hey, I wanna pay it back this month. I don't wanna pay it back. I can't pay it back for five years. You, you call the shots, it's up to you. As opposed to working with an, a literal bank, they call the shots, you're paying it back on their terms and such. And there's pros and cons too, as we you know, progress through that conversation, when you actually look at borrowing against a life insurance policy, the interest rate's higher than what you can get in the marketplace. Some people aren't attracted to that. Um, so you go through pros and cons. But to, to get back on track, infinite banking, that's often how I'll explain it. But then my immediate follow-up question is from your research thus far, Mr. or Mrs. Uh, customer, 
Do you have more questions on infinite banking? Is that really the heart of your research thus far, the question? Or do you have more questions around cash value life insurance and how that works? Every single time, 99.9% .9 of the time, it's, I get the idea of the concept before I even talk to them. I want to know the mechanics of this policy because it's my money going into it and I want it maximized. That's always where it goes. Um, I hope that answered your question. Yeah, and, and I, I want to get into that, but I want to take a step back with you and we yeah. can nerd out a little bit about this because um, we can both talk maybe a little bit more deeper than the average person about life insurance. Maybe that's a badge that we should get, like a life insurance nerds. And I, I, I'm trying to get into that club right now. Um, so yeah. one, of the, one of the epiphanies that I had, because I've learned from a lot of different people, a lot of friends, and, and there's some bad teaching out there. And one of the bad teaching, I think, is these, the people that say, well, you can earn 3%, let's just hypothetical, don't sue us for these numbers. You can earn 3% in your life insurance account and you can borrow at five and you're still, at, and you can buy something like a car, which is a liability, and you're still ahead because your money is compounding the rest of your life and you are, are only paying like a simple interest or amortized interest and all of that. And I get, I get the concept, and, and the concept is talking about uninterrupted lifetime yeah. compounding, but it's a half-truth, and I think it's, it's a bad foundation to build because you're essentially, it's like, if that logic was true, I should just pay cash. And I could yeah. break down why paying cash in that scenario is more efficient. Now, then the next question I get is, Caleb, if, if a life insurance policy only gives me an internal rate of return of three, three and a half, four, depending on company, sometimes you can get five, but that, that could be debated and we could talk about that. Why would I like, why would it, why would I maybe borrow when there's not a math arbitrage? Why would I, if, I, if I'm only earning four and borrowing at five, why would I do that? And this is how I would explain it. I would love to get your answer is when you're talking about this strategy, there's two things that need to be checked. The first thing that needs to be checked is life insurance has to get you a greater result not rate of return a greater result and value to your life and your financial wellness than whatever your borrowing rate is yeah. so let's say that life insurance gets you a three and a half percent internal rate of return that's one benefit out of many if that was the only benefit it was the only benefit that you cared about and that was the only benefit that we were measuring you should not earn three and a half percent to go borrow at five mm -hmm. but the epiphany that i had was like oh instead of just trying to talk about bad math, maybe we should educate people on how life insurance could be an incredible asset that it might not get you 10% rate of return, but what if it got you a value that you would have to earn 10% just to keep up with all the benefits in life insurance? So that, that's number one, is, can, is life insurance beneficial to you and can we understand all the other metrics to that? And then number two, when you borrow, if you're borrowing at five and you're earning a 4%, you literally lost 20%. On that deal and so we also have to talk about the people that are saying you can get rich buying cars and liabilities and going on vacation there again it's a half truth because your policy is growing regardless but you're paying five percent control cost to go make four percent which is a negative twenty percent and so the big thing for me is number one is the policy more valuable than the borrowing rate and and if it's not then maybe you shouldn't do life insurance to begin with and if the answer is yes then the question should you borrow is is the activity that you're getting getting you a greater result or greater rate of return than the cost of capital i know this is deep but like for me it makes so much more sense in the bad math that i've learned from so many people and 
And then I'm more convicted because I don't have to play the illustration rate game because life insurance in most cases on the rate of return is not going to give you arbitrage unless you use a third-party lender. But in, it doesn't even need to if you understand all the benefits of life insurance. Thank you for yeah. listening to my rant. No, I, I like that, especially the first part. And you do it in a, in a way that's it's not confrontational. And I would listen to it, like how you just explained that first part, going through the benefits and such. Because there's two ways you can approach that. Like before getting to the loan feature to say, hey, if I've got a negative spread, why would I even do it? Um, just going through the benefits. Like if I ask about, hey, I've got a negative spread here, why would I even do it? And somebody tries to force feed me the benefits, I'm not going to listen. I'm going to go talk to someone else. Yep. But, but doing it in the way you did it, uh, where it's just you've got the approach and a, approachable tone, if that's the right word, but I, I would listen to it to say, okay, you help open my eyes a little bit. And that just goes back to communicating it effectively and not being a jerk. <laughs> and that's not, not directed toward anyone or any company, nothing like that. The stuff goes on in sales all the time. But approaching that in the proper way is so, so important. So, I mean, that, that got my attention. Thanks for going through that. Um, the second part, with respect to the loans, um, we get that question quite a bit um, where people have gotten frustrated. And I see this particularly with people paying 300000 above, people that put in seven figures per year to policies always bring this up and they get extremely agitated at the marketing out there specifically to say, hey, I've got a dividend of 6%. I can borrow at 5% positive spread, they get ticked off. Like, I'm not even going to look at that stuff anymore. Um, so what we do is just aim to make it as transparent as possible. What I like to do is first bring clarity to the dividend rate and the internal rate of return, yep. looking at guaranteed, conservative, non-guaranteed, all that good stuff with the, the net IRR. And then isolate, here's your annual IRR. Yep. Here's the average internal rate of return. Annual is what you're earning year over year. To If I'm speaking to someone new, think of it this way. What did you earn in the market last year? Oh, I earned 30%. S&P did fantastic. Great. How about the past 30 years? I averaged 7%. There's a difference between your annual IRR and average IRR. So we'll look at that and then also look at the policy and say, okay, if you're going to take a loan against it, what is your net cost to borrow? And the timing on when you take that loan, if it's in the first year, you got a negative IRR on your cash value and you're borrowing. So it's a double hit. So having the awareness there to say, okay, I see the benefits. Here's the net IRR. I like it. I don't want to do this. Or, hey, I'm comfortable with that. I see that I catch up on an annual basis between years five or six, depending on the loan rate. On the average, it's after year 10. It's just bringing awareness to that is the most important thing. Because tell you what, like if I'm aware of it, I still do it. But- if I, if I bought it from you and I thought I was earning this great yeah. positive spread and then found out after the fact, after I've committed a ton of money, and yeah. it's all relative when I say a ton of money to everyone, that's where I'm going to be agitated and post something online that say whole, whole life insurance stinks. Like it's just yeah. be upfront, transparent and make people aware. Like that's, that's the key. And um, sorry if I ranted there. No, no. <laughs> I, I have to give a shout out to Truth Concepts, Todd Langford, um, because I actually got raised in this industry the right way, I would say from that standpoint, because we talked about internal rate of return. I learned how to calculate it. Every policy that we look at, we you don't get caught up in the dividends, but look at the actual rate of return. Um, and what was interesting is I was being told by a lot of advisors and people in the industry to say like, hey, don't, don't show that. Just like, you know, and we hear things like 4% guarantee or a dividend of five or 6%. And I'm like, 
that is one of the most misleading things you could ever say. Dude. Because when someone's hearing that, they're literally hearing, I'm getting a guarantee to 4%, like savings account and all this stuff. And it's like, that's not accurate. That's yeah. not accurate. And, and yet we're literally being taught. I was being sh told to not show the internal rate of return because it looks worse. But what I would say, and I would challenge people on this, is I actually understand if you understand how internal rate of return works, and then you understand how to compare life insurance versus another like asset with all the control, the protections, they, you know, go through the list of benefits. Where else are you going to get a two, three, maybe four, maybe 5% internal lifetime growth yeah. rate with the tax advantages, with the control, with the life insurance benefits, with all the other benefits? Like, yeah, it's an amazing rate of return if you're not comparing it to an investment. And yeah. that was the other epiphany is like, why are we calling life insurance an investment? It's like, if you're investing money in life insurance, that's the problem. And that's where like, those were like some of the epiphanies for me that I'm like, man, like I, I so badly want people to get this because I believe life insurance can be put on a pedestal, not as an investment, but as an and asset or a foundational asset that can enhance what we're doing with our life. Mm -hmm. And so again, you just get me going here, but you, yeah. You you hit on a, a subject that some con some consumers are aware of, a lot of agents are those with the right intentions, which is when you're new in the industry, I went through the exact same thing you mentioned there. Don't show that, right? The IRR, because it looks worse. And that's a fear of if I show this, the person might not buy. Yeah, That's what, like, that's what happens there. Um, and how I view it is like, well, if you don't show it and they find out after the fact, you're viewed as a sleazeball. So like, don't, don't do that, <laughs> if anything. But the IRR, I'll give you a, the most extreme example I, I can that speaks to the internal rate of return. Um, the first time we sat down in the boardroom of the, the bank we work with is the CFO slash co-CEO. He's going to take over, but he's a CFO numbers guy. And everybody's pitched them on Boley. And I hadn't done a, a Boley on my own before without working under another firm that had done that. And just listening to him, asked a question, not about the Boley benefits or anything, but on the illustration. I was trying to play to my strength so I didn't go down something, a weakness of mine, and a road that was a weakness of mine. But just asked him, you know, did you notice, Mr. CFO, that on the, the illustration, you have a constant illustrated rate but the internal rate of return gradually went over, went down over time. And he immediately kind of perked up and goes, I did notice that. Like, what's going on here? Which means it wasn't disclosed to him before. So just asking the right questions. Well, the reason why is you've got an increasing insurance expense, yeah. which is gonna, and a constant rate is going to erode on the IRR. And he was still positive, guaranteed and non-guaranteed. Again, the universal life bullies are different <laughs> than the standard UL. Um, but it's just being transparent upfront with that, that was just an indicator that no one else had gone through that um, because that can be a sensitive subject to say, here's something that is not attractive. I might not like it. Now I feel like I have to fight the battle. No, you don't. Just be upfront. This is what it is. As long as you're transparent, the person will make an educated decision if they're going to move forward or not. That's that's it. I have, I have a question for you. you. You guys are big numbers people. A lot of your videos are breaking down the numbers and I really do believe I mean, that's why your channel is over 17,000 right now. It's like people really, really appreciate that. Advisors, agents, and consumers. My, here's my question is, do you, do you feel like your clients, like the numbers are important, but do you feel like they can also articulate how life insurance can enhance future options and other things? Like how do you educate your clients on like, yes, the IRR is important, 
And I think it's a great indicator to compare different life insurance policies, but it's like one out of many metrics that talk about the true value of life insurance. So in other words, IRR is a great comparison on what life insurance company to get in. But once you're in the life insurance company, IRR after doesn't really matter as much on whether you should borrow or not. It's really, is this life insurance policy helping me get the results that I want to get? Yeah. And if the answer is yes, then check. Then the next part is when should I borrow? And that's really if, if the result is getting you a greater rate of return than the cost of capital, that's like the next easy check mark. But do you find that your clients like, what are some of the other benefits other than IRR that you're like, need to be understood to properly understand the power of life insurance? Yeah, good question. So uh, what comes up more than anything else is using a policy for real estate and business, but it's the, the same thing in my opinion. Um, what we'll do, so we have a, a process where every six months we reach out to our clients, our client relations department is fantastic with reaching out. Here's your review material, updated illustrations. And then would you like to meet with your agent? Um, whether it's a call or a Zoom meeting, whatever. So what, what comes up, we had a case recently where this happened is someone we've been working with. He's got a number of policies uh, with Mass Mutual that he opened with us on him and family members. And then he had or has Penn Mutual policies that he had started before us, before he met us. Um, which they're several years old, he should keep those. But just looking at them, um, he is using them for real estate. He's saying, okay, like my real estate portfolio is growing. I take loans directly against product, both products. Penn, I've got the direct recognition loan. He wasn't super comfortable with that. With mass, I like it. But when you look at the IRR, I'm negative right now. Like what are some things I can do right now? So coaching him through that, we actually looked at a cash value collateral loan. He could call it refinance or collateralize his existing loan balances on all of his policies, which he had loan rates with both of those companies at 5%. Now he has a 3% cost to borrow. It's a business loan on the bank's paperwork, tax deductible. So now all of a sudden, with one of the policies several years old, he's extremely close to a positive spread. We're just looking at that. He's like, that's the kind of stuff that I just want to be made aware of so I can make those moves. And with the real estate nitty gritty, that's not my thing. Um, it's his thing, you know, the, the clients in this case, if someone's in need of another expert, I'm going to pull in someone else. If I know of someone else, um, you know, and before I align with someone else, they've got to be an expert, but I, more importantly, I have to be able to trust them that they're going to treat the people properly. Um, and there's a few people of different professions that are like that one in particular comes to mind, but, um, we're not quick to refer people out. They've got to have the right intentions. When, when it comes to third-party lending, uh, love love that strategy, love using that. How many of your clients opt for that? And let's talk about the pros and cons because there's pros, cheaper cheapest, cheaper interest rate. Yeah. Um, but the, there's some cons that for some people, they don't, they'd rather pay a little bit higher interest rate. How many of your clients, number one, opt in for that? And number two, how would you talk about the pros and cons with third-party lending? That's a good question. So I don't have the data on hand to see the percentage of how many people that actually assign their policies as collateral. If I were to ballpark it, I'd say it's probably between 40 and 50% right now, okay. especially with, with clients paying in you know, 100,000 per year or more or cash value north of six figures uh, because they're looking at the numbers kind of like we talked about earlier. Um, but then the pros and cons, you wanted to walk through those? Yep. Yeah. So how I'll explain it is if you stick with a direct policy loan, the advantage is convenience. 
You can borrow whenever you want. You get direct deposit in a few days. You don't have to fill out any paperwork. You pay it back however and whenever you want. It's extremely convenient. The only thing we have to be aware of is if we borrow too much, right? We're at the max loan and then we don't pay the loan interest and we stop paying premiums. We'll build awareness there so nobody runs into trouble um, and also keep your finger on the pulse of everything. But the convenience factor, that's why people like it. So then transitioning to the collateral loan, the key advantage is that you get a better cost to borrow. And if you're using it for business purposes, you can check off on the bank's paperwork that it's a business loan and you've got a potential tax deduction, no tax advice on this podcast. <laughs> um, and I'm much more comfortable with that than yeah. saying, I'm going to take a, a loan from my life insurance policy, yep. say that it's for business because you can do that. And I've seen people do it, but when you, Read the IRS rules on life insurance. It states deducting loan interest is generally not allowed. Generally speaking, yeah. something in, along those lines. And that makes me uncomfortable. You know what I mean? I don't want to get those letters from the IRS. And I definitely don't want anyone else to get them. So I like the collateral loan for that reason. If it's business purpose, you've got the tax deduction. The drawback is when you take a, a, a draw on your line, you're going to have interest only payments to the bank. If you're not comfortable with that, well, I want to be aware of it and and don't do it. Um, but that is one potential drawback. There's a collateral assignment placed on my policy, which means I cannot easily adjust beneficiaries. I cannot borrow directly against my policy unless the bank signs off on it first. It can add money, no problem. But if I want to make certain moves or changes with that policy, the bank wants to make sure that they're protected Correct. That they're going to get their money first because that's what they're using as collateral. So I am working with a bank in that respect. There's a couple more steps that I have to go through. Um, so we try and lay that out so people know exactly what it is and what it is not. And then that way they can can make an informed decision. When you when you take a policy loan, it doesn't go on your debt to income ratio number. Correct. If you take a if you collateralize your policy, it's my understanding that still doesn't go on your debt to income ratio. Is that correct? That's, that's correct. I have not confirmed that in writing with banks, which okay. I, I need to do, but I've got a policy. I've got a collateral loan set up and it's not, not debt to income. Like right. <laughs> I don't have that. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which can be a which can be a benefit, and the downside I've had someone ask me saying, "Hey, can we figure out a way to report this? Because I need to improve my credit, and how cool <laughs> would that be?" And so I think there's there's pros and cons to everything like we that. do. I think it, in my experience, it does take a little bit more time. I think a, another pro is I think you get money faster. In our experience, our clients that have this set up, it's like a bank. It's, you're actually working with a bank, and so you get the money faster. Um, and and then the potential con is probably the biggest one is you are, I mean, it's you are losing a little bit of flexibility, and and you I believe you'd have to just all like every six months to a year make sure that. Um, you're communicating with the bank as you pay your premium and as the cash value increases, um, that that's being communicated. And so there's, it's not for everybody, um, but for people that are actively using their policies, it can be a huge hack, cheaper money, faster access to capital. And like everything, there's not a one size fits all, but I'm really grateful that, that we're talking about this because again, I feel like a lot of people that go all the way to the bank on yourself, like they almost make banks like the evil people out there and now let, let me be very clear for actual reserve lending is a problem and all this stuff but it's it's just one of those things where it's like we're even when you use life insurance you're using banks yeah you know it's like you're you're paying your premium the money's going into some you know they so it's just one of those things where it's like 
okay, I'm with you. And life insurance doesn't really exit us from the banks other than where your money's being stored. And I don't know a ton of people storing millions of dollars just in a checking account, but yeah. I, I do know that there are probably people that do that. So all in all, anything that you want to say before we go on to our next question? No, that, that was fantastic. Thanks for, for adding that insight, but I'm, I'm good on that point. Uh, what, are the, what are the biggest mistakes people make, clients, advisors that try to do the special type of life insurance strategy? And it's like, if you had this, the Steve's top three don'ts, what would that be? <laughs> yeah, so I can definitely give you the top one that comes up all the time. And I'm sure you've heard this um, for years is when someone gets a whole life insurance policy, the goal was cash value. And then they find out after the fact they could have had more cash value. Correct. They, they asked the question, is this maximized for cash value? They were told yes, or they're told a half answer. As far as I know, like it needs to be confirmed and solidified. And then they find out after the fact that I could have took that exact same policy with that exact same company and had more on a guaranteed and non-guaranteed basis. And I think the issue there is one, it's people's money you're dealing with. So they're going to be sensitive to it. But then two, people are going to feel hurt, especially if they if you invest the time with them, you, you build this relationship, they feel almost as if they made a friend, like, oh my goodness, like what happened? And I'm not saying that's an agent's intention one bit, but that is how people feel. So regardless of what we think or how we'll explain the situation, if someone feels in a certain way, we've got to acknowledge that and, and be considerate of it. So how I view it, and going back to the beginning, when I started working with Nick and Jake, what was different about that is I was meeting with people over Zoom calls. I used GoToMeeting back then. So I had a fear being brand new at all of this, working with people one-on-one, -on -one, that I'm going to show them everything and they're going to go take it to their local person <laughs> and work with them. So I'm like, you know, just setting it up for maximum cash value, it cannot, like you can't do anything to improve the actual numbers, aside from how much you like or don't like someone when you look at the numbers. So setting it up in that manner just puts your best possible foot forward. And all I did was the exact same thing we did for corporations with the CERT planning. They looked at it and said, all right, numbers look great. Let's move forward. Not quite like that, but you know, through repetition, it got better. Um, but that's the number one thing where, where people feel hurt or where whole life insurance gets a bad rap is typically due to expectations not being set properly and then finding out after the fact it could have been different. Why was I not told that? Um, that's the thing that we talk, I talk about probably more than anything else, particularly with whole life insurance and the big objection around it. Yep. Yeah. So Steve's one, any mm -hmm. other ones? It's properly yeah. designed policy <laughs> and you're, I, cause I'm going to go to two, I'm going to play devil's advocate with you because you get two big time criticisms on your, the way that you run your business. And I want to address both of them with you, but any, anything else that you want to check off before I go into that? Yeah, um, that's the big one that I hear from, from customers. Um, the other one we hit on already, which is the idea of the dividend rate of 6%, the loan rate of 5%, just transparency on the internal rate of return. Those are the first the first and second thing that comes up with customers. We can, we can take it from yep. there because criticisms we get from agents, I'll always speak to those. I do believe IRR is important numbers. Like, trust me, like I, yeah. I love math, love it. What I really, really want to be able to do is properly measure a life insurance policy by all the benefits. We talk about it being a multidimensional asset. And right now we do do it a disservice by just looking at the IRR. Mm -hmm. It's important. And again, it's, it's super important when you're comparing it to other companies, but it's one of like 20 benefits. 
and what is the what is the other benefits and so this is less from a standpoint of like i'm with you I, it's a huge pet peeve of mine when people mislead people by saying certain things what i really really want to be able to do is take people through a process that gets them to understand life insurance when set up and used properly can give them such a great result and right now in the world we live in the only way to really measure that or compare that is rate of return and again you can't I, what's the value of having creditor protection what's mm -hmm. the value of a permanent death benefit what's the value of potentially increasing your cash flow 30 years from now because you give your portfolio another benefit i don't know yeah. but mm -hmm. it would be like that would be such a powerful process to take people through and then yes understanding irr and all that stuff is important but it's like oh life insurance for me i would need to earn 12 percent in this fund to even compete with the results that i'm yeah. getting in this boring old whole life insurance policy does that make sense it does yeah and how i look at it because i i love the idea of bringing awareness to, to everything you just mentioned there um how i view it and this is just from listening to business professionals and such is I've got a tendency where I get excited and I want to show everything like IRRs and right. death benefit and the, the long-term value and such. But Jeff Bezos, I talk about him a lot. Um, he makes it a point to say, you know, one of the, the core principle of Amazon is to have an obsessive compulsive focus on the consumer as opposed to the competition. Yeah. And then he goes on and further and further. But one of the things I try and stop myself every week, and it's more than that, it's more like every day to say, okay, what questions are consumers asking me um, and where are they always going? And that's typically, that's what steers our content in a certain direction. Right. Um, so how do you get them to ask more questions or bring awareness, like you said, so they, they see the need and such. Um, I think it's important, and I don't want this to sound wrong at all, I don't think enough people care about the long-term the long-term benefit and the additional values or it's not in the forefront of their mind. Mm -hmm. So how do you do it in that way where they yeah. see it? Like however I get to that end result. Um, but that's just from the consumers we work with and such. And that was not meant to be disrespectful one way no. in one bit. Yeah. But it's, yeah. It, it's it's <laughs> that fine balance of being customer focused, giving the customer what they want, but then also going to the if if I ask the customers what they want, they would say a faster horse not a car so yeah. it's like it's like the the entrepreneur like dilemma from a standpoint yeah. of yes give the people what they want but also like they they might be asking a certain question but yeah. they should be asking another question yeah. and so we have a moral obligation to try to find that fine balance yeah and i found like once once they're working with you like yes. if i work with you exactly. and i ask about irr you show me that what I'm going to get with you is all the other benefits you just mentioned. I'm going to learn that as I go. But a, a problem I see happen to so many people, new agents and even experienced ones, is someone will ask the question. And instead of directly, directly answering that question, they'll tell them, no, you shouldn't be asking that. You should be thinking yeah, of this I'm way you. Or, or you should be doing that. And that'll turn people off so fast. A lot right. of times, like, why did that person ghost me? It's because you said that one little thing that just right. rubbed them the wrong way. And if I said it I to agree. you, you'd, pu you'd punch me in the face. So you got to be mindful of that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, so how I look at it is how do you ultimately help the consumer with what they want now? And then you can continue to feed them the information and help them see everything as time passes. Because like, if I want to buy a, what, what's your favorite kind of car? Do you have one? I'm not a car person. No. Gotcha. You have the Tesla before? I do. Yeah. So I, I own a Tesla and I 
I would sell it in a heartbeat if I needed money, but yeah. I, I do enjoy driving a Tesla over a gas car. Yeah. Especially right now with the gas prices. Uh, <laughs> so if, if I, if you wanted a Tesla and I come and say, no, 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 you shouldn't get a Tesla. You want a Porsche, Caleb. Like this is all the reasons why, like I, I want the Tesla, like get lost. Like this yeah. is what I'm interested in. So, okay. Get the Tesla and then go through the benefits. You know, if I want to talk about cars, whatever it might be, but just being true to the client's questions and intents, helping them with that, and then adding the other material as you go. Um, yeah. I think I'm particularly sensitive to that just from to sales. Yeah. Totally. And I, and I, I got, I'm in this other sales process with something not yeah. even related to life insurance or business. And I just, the way that I was felt on the last sales call was just appalling. I was like, dude, I'm just like, I want to get off of this call with you. And you're trying to like handle my objections. And like, I just yeah. hate it. And especially when, when you're dealing with someone's money, it's like, if you're having to sell anything or convince anyone of anything, it will always come back and bite you. How do you answer this question though? I, I know I asked this, but I, I want to re-ask this. If, if internal rate of return, let's just say life insurance continues to decrease, internal rate of return on an optimistic policy is 3%, hypothetically, yeah. mm -hmm. and a borrowing rate's at five. Yeah. And someone says to you, why would I borrow at five when the 30-year IRR on this policy is at three, and let's assume that third-party lending is not a thing. How there would you, you answer that? So you, you took my second card away, but that's okay. Right now in the interest rate environment, you will see with almost every life insurance policy, the IRR is likely going to be less than the cost to borrow directly yep. from the insurance company. You will see that. Many years ago, that was not the case. So what we've been doing for a lot of people we work with right now is we've got the alternative with the cash value collateral loan. And really, if we're not going to take that, what we look at is what's your IRR on an annual and average basis. And if it's 3% and your cost to borrow is four or five, depending on the company or product, well, measure the actual cost there and be aware of it. And if you're not comfortable with it, it's really good that we're going through this before you put your money here. <laughs> this way you've got the awareness, but we'll just be transparent about it. Um, that's all. I don't try and convince yeah. them or sell them on it. Like that's it. How I view it, going back to Jeff Bezos and Amazon, is if this stuff did not need someone to explain it. You didn't need videos, books, none of that kind of stuff. Right. And you could just purchase it on Amazon, all the different designs and everything. And it was crystal clear for a consumer, like that'd be ideal. So how do you get it there? So a consumer can read the description. Oh, I like this feature on this coffee machine. Now this life insurance policy, I don't like this. Let me move on to the next one. And so they can find the company and product they want. That's really how I view it, where it's just as transparent as you can make it. And then they can make the decision being aware of the pros and cons, because long-term it does have the value. Um, you just look at wealthy families, banks, corporations. We've got our historical performance studies, which I love going into. It delivers, but at the same time, you've got to answer the person's questions and objections like you just hit on and really to answer them, it just show, yeah. them, I mean, show them the truth. <laughs> to answer that question, you wouldn't want to do that if there's not ben other benefits than the 3%. You'd be yeah. better off putting your money in a savings account and using that without a loan. Mm -hmm. But I, so I appreciate that answer. We have a little bit different styles, but I think we, we yeah. approach it very similarly. I want to talk about IUL versus whole life. So I, I did this rant on IUL and let's just say I wasn't, I wasn't hundred percent accurate at all my points. I did all the talking points. Um, and for some reason, the insurance pro blog, which I have a ton of respect for, I'm hoping to get Brandon on the show. They, picked apart my video with like 400 views on their podcast and just grilled me. And I was appalled and I, you know, I, uh, 
you know, sent them a message. I did an apology video. Not and looking back on that, I'm like, I yeah. my video wasn't that bad, but I just like I was just so like I was so scared to mislead the public. Like I was just it was really traumatizing for me. So I'm like, I'm not touching this thing with a ten foot pole. Like I'm I'm making sure like I'm really gonna know my stuff. And in hindsight, it was the mo it was a massive blessing in disguise, Steve, because I'm like, man, I could have gone on years and years of just saying whatever I wanted to say. But I got called out on my first video and I'm insanely grateful for that because it's made me a better communicator. It's made me a better leader. It's made me more empathetic to when I hear other people or watch other videos. And so with that, what is your answer when someone says IUL versus whole life and IUL looks better? Because it's my understanding that you guys deal mostly with whole life. I'm not sure you guys sell IUL, you may, but it's my understanding that you do majority, if not all your business overfunding whole life insurance. So how do you take that answer? And what are some of your points that um, steer you the reason why you do certain things? Yeah, definitely. Um, all, all we do is whole life. We, we don't do IUL. Um, if someone's very interested in that, we refer it out to people that I know, know what they're doing with respect to design and such. How I'll explain it um, is in a non-confrontational way, which goes oh, on. We've already we, stepped on so many toes, so don't worry about it. <laughs> it happens on both sides of the fence. Um, pro IUL versus pro whole life, they fight with each other. That's the issue, in my opinion. But yep. to, to answer your question, a whole life insurance policy, what I'll say to the, the potential client is a whole life insurance policy, if it's well-designed with one of the major mutual carriers, it'll produce a net internal rate of return somewhere between three to 5% based on the actual data. And we'll, we'll provide the historical play playlists we have. But when we look at it, that three to 5% kind of is what it is. That's what, what it's going to produce. And what you'll find is with a whole life insurance product, the guaranteed cash values, but the guaranteed rate will always exceed the insurance expenses. So in an absolute worst case scenario, your values go nowhere but up. That's with a whole life product. An IUL, indexed universal life, will every single time give you more potential than a whole life insurance product. It will, because you can have it linked to the S&P 500 index or other strategies. You've got way greater potential on earnings and it's still a life insurance policy. So you've got the tax benefits. That's where people are attracted to it. The drawback is this. Whenever you look at the guarantees, unlike a whole life insurance product, the insurance expenses will always exceed the guarantees and it will lapse based on the guarantees or deplete to zero with respect to the cash value. And the reason why there is slightly more risk, what happens, there's two main things to be aware of is one, as I grow older, I've got term insurance that's built in that just gradually increases. Unlike a term rider on a whole life, I can chop that thing off. Can't do it with a UL. Yeah, I can reduce it gradually over time, but it's going to keep going up. So I've got increasing insurance expenses. And then cap rates, as we study a lot of history, so seeing actual IULs that have lived, lived the test of time that have been well-designed, I, I tend to see cap rates come down, which limit the earning potential. So in summary, Mr. or Mrs. Prospect, the reason I don't use IULs is when I look at cash value life insurance and products that have actually delivered, I've seen whole life insurance products with the major mutuals, same thing the bank works, the banks we work with, that's what they do. Um, with IULs, I personally to date, I have not seen an actual IRR over a long duration produce any greater than 2%. And that's wow. the date data that I have. The best, and that's the best case. There's a policy issued in 2008. We ran that study period. 
The client funded it exactly as planned. It had a 1035 exchange, was designed with a low insurance expense. Cap rate was 15% plus when he started, and it's come down to about 6% over the years. So, and this is not a shot at IULs because they, they can yeah. work, like there's advantages, obviously, but why we don't use it, like my discomfort is there are elements that are outside of the, our control as the consumer and the agent, right. like you can't do anything about it. And you often have surrenders too. So again, with the awareness, as long as you're aware of that upfront and you're still comfortable, that's okay. It's don't put my money there and then, oh, I didn't know that. Correct. That's the issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that's- yeah. I, I've always- I've always kind of been told this, and I'm grateful for this advice, that if you sell life insurance as an investment, number one, it's not not an investment. You, you need a special license to talk about investing. It's not an investment. And in most cases, if you sell it like an investment, it's going to underperform investments. So when people say buy term and invest the difference, I would love to hear your thoughts on that. And I think it, I think you'll give a similar answer. We're mm-hmm. asking, we're answering the wrong question. Yeah. Um, but how would you answer that? And then, and then I want to talk about the people, uh, two people come to mind in particular that overhype IUL and your, if you've seen any of that or how you would address that. I mean, you did such a good job talking about your thoughts on IUL and the potential levers and mm-hmm. the, the, the potential downfalls to it. And it's one of those things where if you know that amazing, but a lot of people just like they don't disclose in whole life you know, they don't disclose an IUL and there's a lot more variability um, depending on on that um, going to zero. So buy term and invest the difference. Life insurance is a terrible investment. You'd be better off paying term insurance and investing. How would you approach that answer? Yeah, definitely. So buy term and invest the rest compared to whole life. The first thing I'll start with is, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Prospect, you could go either route. What I found is if someone is disciplined with their saving, like they're actually putting money away, they, things work out. Both strategies, I've seen them work. I've seen both strategies. Um, people go forward with them and they're not happy with it in some respects, right? At the end of the day. But as long as you're still saving money, that works. Where buy term and, the vet and invest the difference typically goes wrong with a flaw in it is someone's trying to put less money away and chase higher returns to compensate for the fact that, hey, I, I don't have to save as much. I can go buy more stuff with my lifestyle instead of saving. That's typically where I see it go wrong in that in that respect. Um, but with the objection itself, we don't get it a whole lot, um, not nearly as much as we used to. I'll just, I'll answer it to say, hey, that strategy certainly can work, especially if you know you can do 8% or your advisor has a track record of that. I might even look at both. You know, when you look at a whole life insurance policy, I try not to compare the two. Because if cash value is your focus, right, Mr. and Mrs. Prospect, and the death benefit's got a long-term benefit too, but that three to 5%, you know, some people we've worked with that approach in that manner say, hey, this is like a great uni bond alternative or peace of mind money I don't have to think about. But it's that safe money. 2008 happens, keeps going up. Things happen that happened the past three years or the market just hits a home run. You get the same three to 5%, which is boring. But again, just going back to it is what it is, that's the approach. And then the individual makes the decision for them themselves. I don't try and poke holes in the fact that they could lose money with the buy term and invest the rest strategy if the market tanks. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. No, I, I appreciate appreciate that answer. Yeah. Um, there are two people that come to mind, uh, a gentleman by the name of Curtis Ray and another gentleman, Doug Andrews, and they both do a ton of marketing on Index Universal Life. 
and um, they have books and they're, I would, I would say, and I don't even think this is putting words in their mouth, but they would say that index universal life when set up and used properly is superior than your investments will get you tons of income um, will grow, outperform Roth IRAs. They, <laughs> Curtis has a calculator on his website that breaks all that down. Um, I've talked to Curtis about this. It's an interview that will be released on our channel soon. And um, there's some concerns I have um, with all the things that I've said. How would, do you want to go on record for say anything or one things that you would point out? I know that you don't do, you, you're really not, you know, ever trying to take a jab at anybody. This is my question to you and you don't have to answer it. But what would you say from a standpoint of people really overhyping IUL and and really making it be like the better investment alternative, not even an investment. It's like investments are for losers. You need this and this is going to like change your life. Yeah. Um, you know what I'll say to that? Some people do that with whole life as well. Um, you know, they put their own spin on it. How I look at it with an IUL is, again, you've got that potential there. Um, you can hit a home run. If you average out 7% in life insurance and you do things right where you can access that money tax-free, yeah, that's pretty sweet, especially in the distribution side where you've got a lower loan interest rate. Um, but the thing to be aware of is the actual performance. The life insurance industry, and you hit on this too, when you look at the cash value, if you sell it as an investment, then it underperforms. People are ticked off. And they're not ticked off at the company. They're ticked off at you. Yeah. So when you look at history of life insurance policies, people buy it thinking they're going to get 5% and then it delivers 2%, 3%, depending on the design. IULs have a track record of producing negative IRRs. When you look at a lot of them, and you can talk about the design and say, hey, you can do a lot better if it's properly designed. The other ones weren't set up properly. But when I look at the history and real data, not illustrations, I don't see them work. So when someone's coming out saying, hey, this is the best thing ever, it's like, you need to show me the data and then I'll be sold. People are going to believe what they see, not what they hear. Um, and people say that about whole life. And we've got policies issued for as far back as 1975, all the way through the current, some of which where we take the original issue illustration and measure year by year, we pull the annual statement and say, here's what actually happened. So we can prove it out and not just talk about it. And I... I haven't seen that with IUL. I've done it myself and I got a 2% IRR at best. Most have been negative. So that when I hear the, hey, this is the best thing ever. It's going to trash everything else out there. I'm like, okay, I've seen and heard that a lot. I need to see it not on some hypothetical calculator, but I need a real policy that have lived the test of time. And don't try and tell me, well, the companies don't have it, blah, blah, blah. If they can't produce it, means they don't have it. Yeah, and that, that would be <laughs> non-confrontational or challenging way. It's not meant yeah. to come off like that, but the proof must be there. And people ask us about the major mutual carriers all the time. <laughs> I know that everybody likes that, but that's a big reason why. The proof right. must be there before I give a recommendation as far as where someone should put their money. It's their money you're dealing with. So I want the real data, not the, not the illustrations, which should come through, but come, come true, but never do. Well, and there's there's people that say this, and I haven't verified if this is true or not, but that on you could have a company that could have an IUL and the caps could come down, but the caps that they're selling you a policy with this could be different than a, the caps on a, a policy 20 years that they sold. It could be yeah. different. And in my head, I go like, man, that just doesn't sit right. Because it's mm -hmm. like they could 
literally lower the performance. And and again, I think that's true because I've seen it from my own eyes, but I'm not like an, a guru when it comes to all this stuff. And so all this to say, I would say, um, yeah, I, I think there's a lot of checks and balances that need to be in place. And I think there's a lot of wisdom to say, okay, let's just see the performance in the last 30 years and how you're how these policies did 30 years ago. And that would that would mean so much if we could see that. And unfortunately, it's it's um, there's not a lot of data that's that's yeah. uh, free flowing to the consumer in that. And I think that's potentially the problem with both sides. But I think that that is a concern that I have that just doesn't sit well. And it would be again, sometimes it would be so much easier to sell. But it's like that again, five years from now, it's all, all I don't want to be the person that sold you this policy on a hype and a dream. I'm with you. Yeah. And the 30 years, like that real policies, not back tested S&P 500. Here's what it should do with yeah. the current. So important. And, and consumers don't know, you know, I, I talk about like being a, a master of the game, the life insurance game or business, which I'm nowhere near when I look at some people and the amount of knowledge they have. Um, you know, are you a football guy, football fan? I, I mean, yes, I'm a proud right. owner of the Green Bay Packers. Okay. Gotcha. I'm a Niners fan. So we wouldn't have got along, but we got knocked out anyway. Um, so <laughs> I guess it doesn't make a difference, but Ray Lewis, you know, remember him? Yep. Yeah. So I, I like his stuff, but I remember um, this was after he was retired, he was talking, it has to do with a master of the, the game and I'll bring this relationship into to life insurance. Um, there was a playoff game when Tom Brady was with the Patriots and the Titans coming up and somebody on the Titans said, I want to make Tom Brady looked like some third rated quarterback, Blake Bortles, something like that. Um, and Ray's comment was, you know, you've got these young kids making these comments and they're extremely talented. They know the basics, but then you've got Tom Brady, who's a master chess player, master of the game. He's able to play so long because he's got everything mastered and I'll sit home and do the boring work, watch film for five hours and his opponents are watching it for one hour. And then Ray said, the only way I could beat him, and he threw Peyton Manning in the mix too, is if I would sit my butt down, do the boring work I didn't want to do, and watch film over and over again. It's the only way you could beat them, right? And he beat them both in the playoffs. So I, I heard that. I'm like, okay, it's the boring work. So talking about getting actual performance, insurance companies won't give it to you. How we've gotten it for policies, like there's a, a policy we have, um, it was issued from 2007, I was in high school. No, I was in college at that point in time. Um, but I didn't write that policy, yet we're able to get all the history for it. It took, I don't know how many hours, it was well yeah. over 10 hours worth of work to actually get the original illustration. We were able to get that, made service, get, got servicing rights, and then pulled the annual statements. You got to pull the cash value, the dividends, the death benefit, what actually happened compared with that illustration year over year, tracking actual performance. And that's the kind of stuff that just from experience, not a lot of people want to do. Like yep. it generates zero revenue. So going back to the boring work, like how do you become that master chess player? Totally. Yeah, like, like a Tom Brady, the industry, you've got to get that data for yourself and not rely on the word of someone else. Because again, people are going to believe what they can see, not just what they hear. And I've got to see it first and it's got to be validated. And if I can't get it, I'm going to go try and find it on my own. I'm going to put the boring work in. That's how I view it. And and by the way, just, just to be clear, that's why I respect you so much is you are very knowledgeable. You're sharing that knowledge and your consumer focus. Um, last question. I'd be remiss if I didn't go down this route is I want to talk about some of the pushback that um, I would say you've gotten 
maybe I've gotten by association now that I having having you on the show. And it, it comes down to a couple of things. It comes down to number one, mother mutual companies, you know, like that, that triggers some people, especially with, if you have a policy with not a mother mutual. So that's number one, your, um, 90, 10 concept yeah. or 10 nineties. And that really fires up a lot of people and, and, and it frustrates them for a couple of reasons. But I would say one reason that I've heard is it's like, Hey, you're overhyping whole life. Um, and it's, and there's, there's levers. It's like, we're, we're downplaying IUL, but you're, you're like souping up whole life to act more like an IUL policy. That's um, dependent on high term riders and all these things. Um, and then, and then number one, it's just like a lot of people that are in the space end up going with you versus somebody else. And so I think a lot of that frustration just comes from the, you know, the, they, I, I've heard statements like, oh, Steve is not, um, process focused. He's not teaching their clients process, which is not true. Cause I've seen your guys' your process, but like, it's just one of those things that it's like, he's so focused on the product and not actually teaching people how to use this to think differently. I'm gonna give you an ability to address those three. You don't have to address any of them. I would just be rem uh, remiss if I didn't bring this up and yeah. give you the ability to talk to those. No problem, no, thanks for bringing it up. So with company selection, the major mutuals, I like the term other mutuals. I like that you said that, it's pretty cool. Um, why I'm so big on them comes back to the actual data. Like again, whole life insurance, the big objection, like the number one issue people have with whole life insurance or where um, Dave Ramsey or Susie Orman can attack it is they underdeliver. You think you're going to get a lot and you only get a little. Where I've seen them actually deliver, looking at the actual cash value growth and death benefit growth, also in what corporations do, what banks do with company selection, not because of the company's size, financials, but real policies, what have they done? not what's illustrated. I've seen them deliver. They've been able to provide proof. We have it. I haven't gotten it from anyone else. Um, one company has been very diligent. We're working on it. That's Penn Mutual. Uh, they've worked on it with me for years or I've worked on it with them. Um, and I'm appreciative. I like their business mindset, but we still don't have it. With respect to an internal rate of return north of, north of 4%. And I found that that is an extremely sensitive topic for individuals. They're focused on it, the consumer. So that's, that's why I'm so big on it. It, it hits the nail on the head or, or hits a nerve, if you want to call it that, as far as it's the consumer's money, it's what they're interested in. So that's why, that's why I talk about those major mutuals so much. Um, any questions on that, that piece? No, no, I, I appreciate that answer. Sure. The second part was 1090s. Yeah. Pol policy yeah. being very focused on policy design versus the, what a lot of people would say the process and, you know, yeah. and what the consumer wants is what I've identified. The more we do it, the more interest we get. Um, kind of going back to that question, if you ask about infinite banking and then cash value life insurance, I'll ask the question from your research, which one do you have more questions on? Cash value life insurance. Yeah. So with respect to policy design, right, that whole idea of a, a 1090 split, what that is, is if I'm going to pay in, call it $10,000, my money can go toward one of two main areas, the premium or the PUA rider. I'll throw a term rider in there as well. But the premium, depending on the company, will allow me to go so low. With a lot of the major mutual carriers, they'll allow me to go as low as 10% of my total desired payment. So what that means, if I wanted to pay in 10K per year, if that's my maximum desired payment, if I don't want to commit to that, but I want to be able to get up to 10K per year in, 
Well, I can commit just to the base premium. So now it's very, very low commitment, never feels like a burden, and I can add up to a total of 10,000 per year. Some smaller companies allow you to go much more aggressively. With the recent 7702 change, Guardian opened up just in the first year, you can actually go 50X the base premium. So the whole idea of a 1090 split, my intent was not to make it a 1090 is as low as you can go, because all companies, and you know this, have different minimums with respect to how low you can go. So why I like that low base premium is one, it builds in a lot of flexibility for the consumer. But then two, when you look at policy performance, actual performance, where I've seen policies really under deliver, and we've got some deep dive studies on this, is when that base premium is higher. When you look at how dividends are paid, so not the guaranteed rate, but the surplus piece to base premium dollars and PUA dollars, it is different. And over the long haul, on an illustration and illustration software, it's more favorable to base premium dollars. It's also much more sensitive where companies can and almost always do adjust what they actually pay in dividends compared to that illustration, more so on the base premium. So what I've seen going back to the historical studies is when policies are designed with a low base premium and someone outright states, I'm interested in the cash value, that is the one of the designs that I know is going to deliver the strongest results, guaranteed, and also based on actual performance. So that's why I like it. And then also the flexibility. Um, just as I look at how do I maximize the individual's value, if that's what they're they're interested in. Flexibility seems to be really important, which is yep. it's one of our most important things. And then short-term cash value, important. Long-term performance, important. Um, there seems to be a lot of checks as it relates to why why you do that. Um, why why do you think it people are so passionate about this? And then, is there any if we're playing devil's advocate? Is there any mosquitoes or potential problems that can arise when you're super super funding, you know, heavy PUA term rider to not mech a policy? Is there is there anything that you could speak to that are you should be aware of if you do this? Um, the, yeah, that would be my follow up question to that. Yeah, definitely. So it, there are things you definitely need to be aware of, and it all has to do with limits, right? I'll refer to it as the rules of the game. Know the rules of the game so you can maximize everything and stay in bounds. So uh, the mech, but before I touch on that, there's some things. I'll, I'll take one specific example. And as I say this, every company has examples like this. Take a company like Guardian that I like a lot, one of the major mutuals. They will allow you to 10x your base premium in PUAs annually as long as a one-year term rider is attached. Once that term rider is removed, one year, not renewable, but one-year term rider, once it's removed or naturally expires, because as I pump money in, my whole life death benefit goes up, my term rider comes down, net death benefit, which is the net liability to the company, doesn't increase. So they're comfortable with you shoving money into PUAs. So I can just hyperfund a policy while that term rider is attached. One of two things are going to happen. One, I'm going to have to cut it off, which usually doesn't happen. Usually it's number two, which it naturally expires. Once that occurs, knowing the rules of the game, Guardian will allow you to pay a maximum of 3x the base premium in PUAs. And if you're not careful, that can even drop to 1x after the 10th year. So awareness on that. Often as I look at different products, if someone says, hey, I like the idea of stuffing this policy for five years, 10 years, and then stop or paying a reduced amount, Guardian's great with flexibility. That's one option there. Um, so 
with respect to product flexibility and knowing how to set it up properly, you do have to know the small ins and outs, like the small details are important there. You don't have to overwhelm a client with it, but at the same time, you have to know it as the agent. So they're set up properly. Does that part make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. And then the second part, so with the MEC testing, when it comes to the MEC test, you've got the initial seven pay test. What happens after the first seven years based on your age, death benefit, and then also the cash accumulation, you're subject to a new seven pay test. Yep. It's every now, time you make a material change. So it's every time you make a, a policy payment, the seven year test. Correct. Yeah. Correct. I have seen when you look at actual policies, policies with minimum base premiums, you can MEC test this too. You can look at a MEC test based on the guaranteed values, conservative dividend, any dividend rate, and also the current dividend rate. So if we're going to fund close to the MEC line, I like to build in some space, but if we're going to fund close to it, we will MEC test that thing in every capacity to make sure if I want to fund a policy with a 10% base premium for 30 years, will I run into a MEC? If so, what assumption? And then how do I get rid of it? But if it's going to happen at any point in time, we see it up front and can prevent it. So to answer your question with the MEC risk, if you don't put the boring work in and check that, or if you're not aware of it, you can run into an issue. However, you can prevent it. Again, going back to the corporate model, they do this kind of stuff, but you have to know what to look for there. Um, that's on the MEC test. But the other point I wanted to mention is I've seen policyholders get into trouble, and I've only seen this with higher base premiums in the 30 to 40% range. I'll give you one story and then I'll stop talking because I'm talking a lot <laughs> is I met this guy, I think it was 2017. He had a policy for a number, a number of years. Um, he was paying in exactly what he started with day one every year, paid his premium, PUA, everything on schedule. The original illustration told him he would not mech, gets an enforced illustration. He's told you keep going down this path. You're going to mech in year 18. His question, I can't get a hold of my agent. Why is this happening? The original one said I was not. The reason why, beyond the first seven years, what has, what has happened since he started the policy, dividends came down. So as he keeps pumping money into the policy, we all think dividends impact cash value. They do, but your death benefit appreciates slower as well. Death benefit has a direct relationship to the MEC limit. Yeah. Yeah. So that's exactly what happened. So a nice way you can avoid that um, long-term MEC issue and the design has the 10%, 50%, 90% base, whatever has nothing to do with it. It's the total death benefit. Yeah. And what's that look like with the MEC test? Like that's the kind of stuff you have to look at first. Um, and you know, a lot of and times- And you're saying, you're saying because of, because there's a base. So if all we put in was a base premium, the death benefit would be very level and then maybe increase. And it would increase because dividends, the most okay. popular option for a dividend is to elect it to come in paid up additions, which is- one of the best ways that I learned with paid up additions is it's like a Lego block that stacks some cash and increases a one-time death benefit. Yeah. You're saying is if you're have a heavy base, you could get you could get something that could mech because your dividends are not buying enough paid up additions and wouldn't it be the other way around or oh, or yeah, so you're on the right track. Think of it this way. I got a dividend rate of 8% when I purchased the policy. Year 18, the death benefit based on that, my payments and the dividend projected a $2 million death benefit. Now the dividend over the past eight years since when I started the policy has come down to 6%, right? So it's it's come down quite a bit. Now at that same 18 year mark where 
I'm being told I'm going to run into a mech. My death benefit is projected only to be $1.7 million instead of $2 million, which has a direct relationship to that long-term mech test. So that's where we can run into issues. But again, you can forecast that by just running things conservative. Look at the guarantees. That's always a safe bet, but it takes time. I'm with you. I'm with you. Steve, is there anything else you want to say before we close this, this show? Thanks for asking that. I ask everyone when we ever podcast that question. Um, no, I've got nothing else, but I appreciate your your time. Thank you. Thanks for yeah, having us. If this was your last day on earth and you were with the people that you love the most, you couldn't give them any of your videos, what would be the one conversation you would have with the people that you care mo- most in life? Yeah, it would be with my wife, uh, just about... <laughs> Um, that's a good question. I don't want to, I don't want this to sound wrong, but it would definitely be with my wife, um, without getting too much in the weeds, it'd be Bible based. Um, and I'll leave it at that (laughs) just for the sake of this being public. (laughs) Well, we will put your uh, YouTube channel down below and anything else that you want to plug. Um, I would, I would recommend if you want to be part of the life insurance nerd club, you definitely need to be subscribed. (laughs) Steve's channel and what you guys are doing. I'm smarter because of this episode. I appreciate how you articulate things and I appreciate you being customer focused and being a a pioneer in our space. I I really do believe that. And uh, I'm, I'm grateful to see what the future holds. Likewise. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time and enjoy. Thank you so much for listening to the Better Wealth Podcast. It would mean the world to me if you could hit subscribe, leave a review, and share this with the people that you know and love.